This is Guns and Butter. 2010 was watershed because it enabled the post-census gerrymandering that was so effective and so ruthless. And we looked at 2010, and what was interesting about that was with a relatively modest victory in terms of the number of votes cast, uh, the margin of, of victory in the national popular vote for the House of Representatives when you put all the races together, they took an unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented sweep of seats. So the seats gained to margin of victory ratio was something we'd never seen before in the history of this country. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Jonathan Simon. Today's show, Voting Machines, Computerized Election Theft. Jonathan Simon is executive director of Election Defense Alliance, a nonprofit organization founded in 2006 to restore observable vote counting and electoral integrity as the basis of American democracy. As a result of his prior experience as a political survey research analyst in Washington, Dr. Simon became an early advocate for an exit poll-based burglar alarm system independent of media and corporate control to detect computerized vote shifting in election 2004. In the absence of such a system, he was nevertheless able to capture and analyze official exit poll data, briefly posted on the web prior to its election night disappearance, realizing as the following day dawned that he was, in fact, the only person in the world in possession of this critical data, which went on to serve as the initial basis for questioning the validity of the 2004 presidential election. He has appeared in several election integrity-related films, including Stealing America, Vote by Vote, and Uncounted, The New Math of American Elections. He is the author of Code Red, Computerized Election Theft, and The New American Century. Jonathan Simon, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. Another shocking right-wing route, another round of pundits trying to explain it and not coming up with anything that squares with the data or makes any sense. How does the party of no and the 1%, nakedly obstructionist and grossly unpopular, as you've pointed out, uh, their congressional approval rating is in single digits with shrinking demographics to boot, how do they wind up rewarded rather than punished when the voters finally get the chance to weigh in? If you ask um, any of the many uh, pundits that appear on the network shows or write for the Times or the Washington Post or even the progressive um, media outlets, uh, they will point to structural factors like gerrymandering and Citizens United, the flood of money. Uh, they'll even point to voter ID laws um, and apathy and uh, various other explanations, which all have in common the fact that they're overt. They're things that you could see. They may not be fair. Gerrymandering may be a very bad thing, but it's happening more or less out in the open. What they will not go anywhere near, uh, it is still verboten uh, in public discourse in America, um, is the distinct possibility and, in fact, the probability 
that in the darkness of cyberspace where these computers are recording and tallying our votes by the millions, there are electronic programmed manipulations taking place that alter the vote counts and with them alter the results of the elections and alter them in a distinct unidirectional pattern towards the right. Uh, and we have been seeing that since the computers um, came in uh, and proliferated, which would date it back to about 2002. Um, when election rigging in America moved from the retail to the wholesale department, um, it wasn't something where you'd stuff the ballot box vote by vote uh, or have some people in Chicago vote six times. Uh, it's not easy to steal national power uh, in that manner, vote by vote retail. But when you have control of the computers, uh, you can do it in basically a finger snap with very, very little risk of exposure. And we believe that's what's been happening for the last decade or uh, 12 years, actually. Now, with regard with regard to these uh, midterm 2014 elections, you have said that there are forensic red flags all over the place. What are they? Well, um, I'm still crunching numbers, and there are some of my um, colleagues who are analysts are crunching numbers as well. But there have already been um, pretty clear um, evidence of disparities, gross disparities between exit polls and uh, vote counts, uh, official results, between pre-election polls, uh, not just one or two, but whole swaths of pre-election polls and outcomes. Um, and that has been a pattern that has afflicted quite a few of the elections over the past uh, decade uh, or so. And again, it, it's not a pattern that would occur by chance. It's not glitches. Glitches um, happen uh, in any sort of counting uh, process, but they don't have a bias. They cut 50-50, and we're not seeing 50-50. For instance, take Wisconsin as an example. Um, exit polls show Scott Walker trailing slightly. He winds up winning by 7%. Um, it was, by the way, the exact same redshift, we call this a redshift, um, that occurred in his recall election in 2011 uh, when the exit polls were not published, but we got a hold of them. They came out actually through a, a local paper um, that showed him slightly trailing, and he wound up winning by 7%. These things don't just happen. Exit <laughs> polls have been pretty fine-tuned, and they're pretty accurate, and uh, we see this pattern now across the country. It impacted the um, U.S. House elections, although they're not exit polled individually, they're polled as an aggregate, and we have a big red shift there. It's going to take a little time to fine-tune this and, and, and put uh, it all into clear bottom-line form, but the red flags are all over the place this time around. And I have to say that going into this election, one of my articles uh, focused on the fact that the polls themselves um, were being corrupted, that our baselines had been corrupted because 
pollsters don't stay in business by getting elections wrong uh, year after year and election after election. So they had begun to make adjustments to their methodologies to keep up with the fact that vote counts were always to the right of their polls. So they developed a thing called the likely voter cutoff model, which uh, I don't want anybody's eyes to glaze over, but basically it operates to screen respondents out of their polls. Um, And by doing that, they managed to keep pace uh, with the vote count results. But what they're screening out is disproportionately Democratic voters who wind up going on to vote. So you ask a set of questions um, about stability of residents, about past voting patterns, et cetera, et cetera, that cut. They have a very strong partisan cut because Democratic voters are more likely to be transients, minorities, students, renters, et cetera, et cetera. If you can't answer all seven questions in the affirmative, you're excluded from the sample. Does that mean you're, you're not going to cast a vote? Absolutely not. You might have a 30% chance or a 50% chance of casting a vote, but you've been taken out of the, the sample. The result is basically skewing the sample to the right. So I was bemoaning the fact that the polls that we've been looking at, these pre-election polls, and to some degree, and for slightly different reasons, the exit polls, were already red-shifted, and that, in fact, we were unlikely to see any red flags in this election because the red shift had already been anticipated. Well, surprise, surprise, even with these corrupted baselines, we saw a whole flock of red flags. So it's even worse than it looks um, if you take the polls at face value and don't recognize that they've already been effectively pre-adjusted, it looks bad. But if you recognize that they've already been pre-adjusted to the right and the vote counts are still coming out to the right of them, it looks egregious, outrageous. Um, and it fits with what we believe has been the strategy, which I could uh, expound upon a little bit later, um, of of Uh, of those who would manipulate these elections and the approach that they've been taking. And it's really come to a head in 2014. Now, uh, Jonathan, you are discussing pre-election polls. Now, somewhere in your book, Code Red, there is an instance where a Democratic official is naturally sort of censoring himself by about 10% like moving moving the expectation of a Democratic win, for instance, by about 10% backward. Uh, is this also uh, what you're talking about? Yes. You know, that refers to a, a conversation I had uh, in a public forum. It was actually a conference on media reform back in 2007 with a man who was at the time the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, um, official pollsters, Cornell Belcher, and I asked him on this panel uh, whether he placed any credence at all in the fact that, uh, you know, that we had all these redshift patterns and that whether the election returns could possibly be uh, being manipulated. And of course, he said, absolutely not, not a chance. Um, and then he said something curious. He said, but you know, it's funny. And I felt like he was a, a little bit like he was on truth serum. He said, uh, you know, when our internal polls show our guy uh, ahead by 10 points, 
we've learned to treat it as if he's even, as, as, as if it's, it's a toss-up. You know, and we, we can't figure out why. So internal polls are, are designed to be very accurate because they allow the party to get the information necessary to know where they should put money into elections uh, at the last minute, where, where the money is needed, where it's not needed, where it would be wasted. So those polls are designed to really tell them the truth. They're not designed to market any candidate or build momentum or anything. They're internal. And when they're off, so they're doing their best methodology-wise to come up with an accurate picture. And he was talking about them being off by 10%. And so then I reframed my question and said, well, in light of that, do you think that there's a possibility that vote counts could be manipulated? And he said, of course not. And that's the kind of denial that we have been dealing with all along. This is America. It's the beacon of democracy. It could never happen here. Now, You've been talking about pre-election polls. How important are exit polls? And have the final tallies deviated sharply from them? And uh, in addition to that, uh, what is an unadjusted as opposed to an adjusted exit poll? Okay, well, exit polls um, avoid the problem of trying to guess who is actually going to go out and vote. Um, so you're dealing with actual voters, uh, voters who have just cast their ballots and come out of the poll. So in that sense, they, they should be less prone to any sort of uh, error. And in fact, all over the world, they've been used as the gold standard to assess whether elections have been fraudulent, uh, whether you go to you know, a place like Kenya or Afghanistan or anywhere in the world, except in the United States. In the United States, when the exit polls and the vote counts have diverge and don't agree, the assumption is automatically made that the vote counts are legitimate because this is the beacon of democracy and it could never happen here. And the exit polls are then adjusted to match them. And the idea behind that is that, well, the exit polls must have been off and so we're going to adjust them to match the vote count so everything lines up and we can make a presentation, an academic presentation, about the electorate. See, if we, if we get the exit polls accurate by matching the vote counts, then we can say, well, how did 35 to 49-year-old Republicans feel about the economy? We can get accurate answers to all these other questions. What kind of turnout did the Democrats have? What was the turnout among black voters or Latino voters or young voters or old voters, et cetera, et cetera. So to, to make the exit poll, and I'll try to keep the sarcasm out of my voice, but more informative, it becomes necessary to adjust it to the vote counts. Well, when there's a big red shift and the exit polls are off by, let's say, 7% from the vote counts, that's a one hell of a big adjustment. And that adjustment happens relatively quickly after the polls close. <laughs> we believe that it happens at times before the polls close as well. Um, none of this is made tremendously public or tremendously clear. But after the debacle of 2004, when the exit polls had John Kerry as our next president, um, and there was a lot of uproar. Uh, I was responsible for some of it. And um, in response, this whole mechanism of polling became more 
secretive and less cooperative with anybody trying to keep score at home. And again, the bedrock assumption is that the vote counts must be accurate, and therefore the exit polls are relatively quickly, within minutes sometimes of poll closing, adjusted. So what we do is we try to grab them before they're adjusted. I'm speaking with author and researcher Jonathan Simon. Today's show, Voting Machines, Computerized Election Theft. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The first posting of the exit polls, we will screenshot it and save it so that we can use it as a baseline before the poll is adjusted to congruence with the vote counts. And then we see what kind of pattern we have, how many states, how many Senate races, how many governorships, what's happened in the House. And unfortunately, uh, we keep seeing very, very strong redshifts, partisan patterns, especially in down-ballot elections and especially in off-year elections, 2006, 2010, 2014. And the significance of that, it's very significant because the American public, by and large, rivets its attention on presidential elections. And the assumption has always been, well, Obama won. Why would the right rig only to lose? There must be nothing wrong. It's safe to go back in the water. Meanwhile, the genius who is behind the rigging is playing a much deeper game. And that game is to work from the bottom up and to create an infrastructure in the American political system from the bottom up, from state legislatures up, from the U.S. House of Representatives up. When those bastions, which is what has happened, and you control the mechanism of electoral politics in the United States, so you can gerrymander the House once you have control of the state legislatures, and you can keep the U.S. House from changing hands, basically indefinitely. You can keep those state legislatures from changing hands virtually indefinitely by the power, the ruthless power, which is now very much computer-aided, very precise, of gerrymandering. And for those who aren't familiar with that, the way gerrymandering works is you take all of your opponent's voters and you throw them into a single district. So they win that district 100 to 0. And then you take your supporters and you distribute them among a bunch of districts so that they win those districts 52 to 48, 55 to 45. So with the same number of voters supporting each party, you manage to win 80 or 90 percent of the districts. This is what happened in Pennsylvania. In 2012, there are 18 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives for the state of Pennsylvania. And post-2010, when the census comes out, and that's when the redistricting takes place every 10 years, um, the Republicans got in and they redistricted brilliantly. So that in 2012, the Democrats actually won the majority of votes statewide for the U.S. House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. And they wound up winning five of the 18 seats 
with a majority of the vote. This is how powerful it is. Well, that's the way you take over a country. You take elections, whether you have to beg, borrow, or steal them, at these lower levels, at levels where nobody's looking. There's no scrutiny. There are no exit polls, individual race by race. There are no exit polls whatsoever for state legislatures. Nobody's even paying attention. It's hard to get the returns from, let's say, the state legislative races in Ohio or Michigan. You have to go to local papers and really dig to even find out what the votes were, let alone any baselines or exit polls or anything like that. Nobody's paying attention to this. You take those over. You gerrymander. You pass voter ID laws. You gut campaign finance laws. You purge voter lists, all from a strictly and strongly partisan agenda, and you take over the political mechanism. What is going to happen now is the icing on the cupcake, and that is that Alec, which is the conservative legislative um, uh, consortium, basically run under the uh, Koch brothers, is going to be passing laws in these presidential blue states, in states that ordinarily go Democratic in the presidential race, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, the states that gave Barack Obama his victories. And they're going to be passing laws that apportion the electoral votes in those states by congressional district. And on the surface, what could be fairer? Because if you win a state 51% to 49 and you get all the electoral votes, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. That's the problem of our electoral college system. So isn't this a wonderful reform? The problem is that you will not see a Democratic president in your lifetime when these reforms pass, and I do not exaggerate one iota. The population of the country and the demographics are distributed in such a way that by having taken control of these states and passing these laws, and they're perfectly constitutional, there's nothing to stop them, they will take a state like Pennsylvania, and the Democrats could win the presidency in Pennsylvania. They could win the popular vote and wind up with five out of 20 of the electoral votes. Meanwhile, all the red states are solid. They will be not apportioned. And even if they are apportioned, all the congressional districts are red in those red states. So there would be no way for a Democratic president, no matter how unpopular the Republicans become, no matter what they do politically, that's provocative, there would be no practical way for a Democrat to win the presidency in this country or the U.S. House of Representatives or these state legislatures that have all been gerrymandered. That is the plan that has come to fruition. And that is why 2014 was such an important election because it's the first time that it is easy to show the workings of this plan and how powerful it is 
and how devastating it is. Now, you've been talking about the corporate-funded American Legislative Exchange Council, what people call ALEC, and it works with legislators on corporate-crafted model legislation to bring before legislators. Now, what you've been talking about is an ALEC gerrymandered presidency, and you see this possibly happening as early as 2014. Is that what you're saying? Well, 2015. Um, oh, yeah, well, yeah. This, this coming year. Yeah. In other words, before the next presidential election. Absolutely. Now, how is it that it's not unconstitutional to change the laws on a state level with regard to how the electoral votes are somehow distributed or calculated? Well, this, I mean, for one thing, it's been ruled constitutional. Maine does it now. Maine apportions its electoral votes, um, you know, which was just a trivial footnote up until the present time. I mean, people just thought, oh, well, that's quirky, that's Maine. Um, it's past muster with the Supreme Court. Um, states are the arbiters, basically, of their own elections, even of federal elections. Much, much of that power to determine who is eligible to vote. I mean, obviously, there's, there's constitutional amendments that, that have superseded that in certain areas, the 18-year-old vote and the 15th Amendment, um, et cetera, et cetera. But within those constraints, the states have a great deal of latitude. And one of the things they have latitude to do is decide whether they're going to have a winner-take-all election for electors to go to the Electoral College or whether they're going to have an apportioned election of some sort. Now, if they passed a law that said no matter how the vote goes, all the electors shall be Republican or something, obviously that wouldn't pass constitutional muster. But the mere process change to make it proportional and apportioned by congressional districts, so each congressional district gets one elector and then there would be two electors at large for the state because your electoral college vote is, is too greater than your representation in the House. Um, it would be perfectly constitutional. And as a matter of fact, I, I don't think I don't think they'll have any problem passing those those laws. Um, they hold majorities in these states, states like Michigan, states like Pennsylvania, states like Ohio, Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera. They have the governorship. As a matter of fact, courtesy of election two thousand fourteen, the country now at the state level is more Republican than at any time since Herbert Hoover. Now, how to square this with the fact that their approval ratings for what was obviously a Republican-dominated House were single digits? How to square this with the fact that they have been grossly unpopular in terms of their actual policy positions in poll after poll after poll after poll consistently for the last four or six years, how to square this with the fact that when referenda were voted on all through the country in 2014, the right-wing positions all lost. The positions that the same candidates who were being elected focused on and made the core of their campaigns lost. So for instance, uh, referenda that were related to death with dignity, referenda that were related to abortion rights, um, all those went the liberal way all throughout the country. 
in place after place, even the red states, even a state like Florida. That seems to represent the mood of the people of the country. But the votes that those people cast for the candidates, that doesn't seem to represent the mood of the people of the country. That seems to be so far off the mood of the people of the country that you would at least, and this is all we ask, question, open up some op scans, pull out the ballots from those machines, count them in public, observably, determine whether the numbers that were spit out of those machines that were recorded on those memory cards match the actual voter marked ballots. I'm speaking with author and researcher Jonathan Simon. Today's show, Voting Machines, Computerized Election Theft. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's take a look because we have a secret unobservable vote counting system in this beacon of democracy. You cannot look at the ballots that have fallen down into the op scan after being supposedly counted. The public has no access. The candidates have no access. And in the vast majority of cases, the election administrators have no access. And God knows you cannot look at the memory card that told that machine how to count those ballots and then in a partitioned part of it stored the count of those ballots. A memory card has somewhere between 500,000 and 700,000 lines of code on it. Optical recognition um, is pretty code intensive. So when you have a ballot with, you know, five, ten races on it, 500,000 lines of code. The way those ballots are counted, and I'm not a high-tech person, but this is pretty straightforward. The way those ballots are counted is that you have a partition part of that memory card where the count has to start somewhere. Now, if you were counting ballots by hand, you'd pick up the first ballot for candidate A and you'd put it down on the table. The table is zero and the first ballot is one. But computers don't know that. To computers, zero is just another number. There is no zero that is a flat table. So you can start to count at whatever number you program into the computer. So you've got 500,000 lines on the, on the memory card and the folks programming the memory card, and by the way, the right wing basically came in and took over the vote counting uh, mechanism, the vote counting corporations, Diebold, remember Wally O'Dell, and ES&S, which Diebold became premier, then became Dominion, hard InterCivic, owned in part by the Romney family. Um, those guys, anybody working for them, anybody in an intermediate part of the pipeline, could add three lines of code to a memory card. And what those three lines of code would do, let's take Wisconsin, Scott Walker and Mary Burke, his Democratic opponent. Given optical scan machine, add three lines somewhere in that 500,000, that big soup, you put in three lines. They reset the zero counters. 
the first ballot, I come in and I vote for Mary Burke, her first ballot is minus 49 on the counting stick on that memory card. You go in and vote for Scott Walker, his first ballot is 51, plus 51, because you've set her zero counter to minus 50 and his zero counter to plus 50. End of the day, you got the right number of votes. That cancels out. You added 50 to him, you took away 50 for her, number of votes on the OPSCAN matched the number of voters who signed in. The election administrator says, good enough. It's a clean election. And you've just shifted 100 votes per machine. And by the way, the, the 100, I just made up the number. You could go plus 100, minus 100, and shift 200 votes. The only limit is good taste. The only limit is the smell test, or as I like to refer to it, the stuffed nose smell test, because nobody really wants to smell. And you've done that with three lines of code that are effectively never, ever going to be investigated because the memory cards are off limits to all investigation. They will never see the light of day, nor will the ballots in those ballot boxes see the light of day. This is how reliable our election system is in this beacon of democracy. You'd be better off running for office in Rwanda. Well, who dominates the upper echelons of the voting computer industry? Who owns the proprietary software that counts the votes? Well, the, the, the computer voting industry has never been... It, it, it's never been easy to trace. It's very much of a shape-shifting entity. But if you go back into... The early part, well, the, the very beginning of the new millennium and the new century, the main companies that were ready to assume the task of computerizing the elections in America were Diebold and ESNS, Election Systems and Software. Election Systems and Software, once pretty much was run by Chuck Hagel, the senator, the Republican senator. Um, but this was after his time. Two brothers, the Urosevich brothers, Bob and Todd, each one of them became either CEO or chief technical officer. In other words, they took over control of Diebold and ESNS, respectively. And the Urosevich brothers um, had ties to Howard Amundsen, to the religious right. And they decided to take their money, their, their substantial uh, fortune, and plow it into voting machine companies. And voting machine companies are not major cash cows. They don't tend to be very profitable. Soda machine companies do much better. Uh, ATM companies do much better. Uh, slot machine companies do much better. But these brothers chose voting machine companies. Um, strange. And so it was kind of a family affair. They had control of the companies that counted over 80% of the vote in, let's say, 2004, when George Bush was, quote-unquote, reelected. And since then, there's been a lot of shape-shifting. Diebold was sold. It's, it's elections division 
was sold lock, stock, and barrel to ESNS for $5 million. Red flag. $5 million is about the value of a single large county contract. And it was sold for that. In other words, it was given away. The Justice Department came in, had some issues with that. Things were spread around. You wound up with Sequoia taking part of it. You wound up with Premier Election Systems taking part of it. And then that, that got fed over to Dominion. Dominion was based in Canada. Nobody knew anything about Dominion. Um, so these are, these are the private corporations who, who count our votes. They're, they're completely unaccountable. And yet, they have been given, uh, you know, corporate rights are a big, big thing in this country. <laughs> corporations are not just people. They're more than people. They're super people. They have more rights than people. And one of the rights they have is that you can't look at anything. Their machines, their code, their memory cards, all proprietary protected, unless you want to go in there and, I don't know, risk a jail term for stealing it, there's no way you're ever going to get any of that or any of that information. This is the black box. This is, this is the darkness of cyberspace. By the way, it, it gets worse. A lot of these machines, although it has been denied by some people who are outright lying about it, and protecting this institution of ours. Um, but a lot of these machines are networked. In 2004, the votes from the critical Ohio counties that came in, quote-unquote, late, those votes were processed. I use the word with air quotes, processed, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the, the company that was set up for that, Smart Tech, was run by Mike Connell. And Mike Connell was Carl Rove's, quote, IT guru. He was counting the votes on these machines located out of state from Ohio. And all of a sudden, Bush surged ahead, confounded the exit polls, and won re-election. And what happened? Yeah, red flag is right. And what happened to Mike Connell? Mike Connell was an interesting man. He was a devout Christian who apparently was suffering some serious pangs of conscience about the various things he had done for Karl Rove. His interest in the whole thing was basically a, a pro-life stance. And so he, you know, he pitched in with, with Rove, and he had a, a genius for IT, and he, he, had, he had given a, uh, a deposition, and he was scheduled to return to court, to open court, the following month. This was in December of 2008, and he was scheduled to come back into court in January of 2009 in a case that was being pursued by plaintiffs in Ohio, still against George Bush and Karl Rove and Kenneth Blackwell, the Secretary of State, who was also the chairman of the Bush re-election campaign in Ohio uh, about the 2004 election. You know how litigation takes, takes a while. And when I heard that he had been told by the judge that he was going to be required to come back and appear in court, uh, incidentally, Rove was in there with his attorneys fighting this all the way, but he, he lost. Um, I said to a, a colleague of mine, I, I remember it very clearly, uh, 
the poor guy's never going to see Christmas. And he didn't. December 19th, his plane went down um, under very suspicious circumstances. The uh, forensics done at the scene were very odd, to say the least. Uh, Simon Worrell wrote a pretty pretty good book about this. He's a, he's a British journalist, and I believe it was called Cybergate. Could be wrong about that, but it detailed all these anomalies. And uh, his wife wound up coming to the scene and finding the earpiece to his BlackBerry, which reportedly contained the BlackBerry, had contained thousands of emails, confidential emails between Mike Connell and Carl Rove. But the BlackBerry was never found. No part of the BlackBerry, other than the earpiece, was ever found. So that was Mike Connell. And when people say, well, you know, if all this is happening, uh, you know, you crazy conspiracy theorist, um, why aren't there whistleblowers? Why don't they come forward? Well, uh, some of them have. And it doesn't take too many Mike Connells to send a message to anybody else who might be considering spilling the beans. It's about sidelining and disempowering the public and taking over control. And if we look at history, there's a tendency for that to happen in all instances, whether it was Athens or Rome or Germany or the United States. Are any election vote counts done overseas in other countries? Any U.S. election vote counts? Yes. Um, well, that's an interesting question. Not that I know of. Um, I will say that Skyfall, which is involved in military voting, Internet voting, it's kind of working its way into that field, uh, was actually Barcelona-based company, and they are beginning to become a, a factor, a player in the vote counting business. But uh, not that I know of. Um, Again, you know, cyberspace doesn't really obey national borders, so if it's being counted uh, on a server someplace, wherever that server is, remote from the polls, it might as well be in another country. I mean, if you're counting Ohio votes in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's in a warehouse someplace uh, off the beaten track in Chattanooga, it might as well be in Zanzibar. Um, it's cyberspace. It's big, it's vast, and it's extremely insecure. I'm speaking with author and researcher Jonathan Simon. Today's show, Voting Machines, Computerized Election Theft. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And could you discuss the Help America Vote Act? How were the needs of disabled voters, which could have been effectively addressed, you write, without the introduction of computers, cynically exploited by the Help America Vote Act's proponents? Well, all right, the Help America Vote Act uh, was uh, promoted and and passed uh, largely in response to the debacle of the hanging chads in, in the 2000 election. Um, ironically, an election that was pretty clearly in retrospect stolen for Bush, and the big dividend of it was they, you know, remember the picture of the guy with the big magnifying glass and the hanging chads? Uh, it provided the subtext to hurry up and computerize our elections. And Bob May 
and Mitch McConnell and uh, several other top Republican dogs uh, basically sold to John Conyers, who was, of course, Democrat, you know, chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, um, sold to him the idea that computerizing elections would help the Democrats because it would improve turnout. And the Democrats have been on a improved turnout kick ever since. I mean, they always have been. It's no secret that Republican voters tend to be more consistent voters, more committed voters, and the Democrats have to work harder to take their transient, marginal, very often young, very often minority constituents and get them to the polls, get them to vote. So the idea that they could computers, et cetera, et cetera, was uh, a selling point to John Conyers. Well, he should have been uh, fairly suspicious because the whole MO of Republicans uh, politically for the last century has been to reduce and suppress turnout in their own partisan interest. So this would be a very odd thing for them to be proposing for that reason. And so they got agreement, and, and uh, the disability community uh, weighed in very strongly uh, that they needed computers and they needed access, et cetera, et cetera, and that also promoted HAVA, the Help America Vote Act. Um, those needs could have been met. There are ballot marking devices that are non-computerized that could have met those needs, but that was all swept aside. And, of course, if you dared to oppose HAVA, you were opposing disabled people. And you were a Luddite because you were insisting that computerization, you know, its time hadn't come. So there was a big groundswell and there was big momentum. HAVA got passed. Computers went in everywhere. They were not exactly mandated, but there was a very, a, a small stick and a very big carrot offered to the states to computerize. And they did. And the results ever since the 2002 election have been malodorous. What else can I say? I mean, red flag, red shift after red shift, um, bizarre, bizarre stuff. Again, most of which has been, all of which pretty much has been downplayed or outright ignored by the media. But we have the, we have the data, we have the evidence. It's, you know, it's stored on spreadsheets. It's factual. And there is just no other explanation for a lot of it. And I do go into this in Code Red, um, there's really no alternative explanations other than votes were mistabulated. And they were mistabulated wholesale. You know, one of the best things ever said was said by a Republican on, the, on this area. He was a Republican IT professional. His name was Chuck Heron. And when he was being interviewed for the Dorothy Fadiman's film, uh, Stealing America Vote by Vote, um, Chuck said, you know, it takes a long time to change 10,000 votes by hand. It takes three seconds to do it on a computer. And then he went on to explain how he, you know, did all these various test runs where he flipped literally millions of votes in seconds. And that's been replicated. That's been done by others, by Harry Hursty and Alex Haldeman and various other people, you know. And, and the studies are out there which have concluded definitively and I mean studies by the Brennan Center, Johns Hopkins, Princeton, the um, Government Ac Accountability Office uh, in Washington, you know, not amateurs by any stretch, have concluded definitively 
that a single individual with inside access, and in some cases just with outside access with the capacity to hack, can change the results of dozens, if not more, elections and not leave a trace. And that's what Hava bequeathed to us, a system that is that vulnerable. And we just have been fatally, fatally slow off the mark in recognizing what God hath wrought, you know, to quote Alexander Graham Bell, our great new technology. When you talked about referenda diverging from the vote outcome, what did you mean by referenda? Did you mean uh, ballot measures? Yes, exactly. Initiatives, referenda, ballot measures. Um, you know, again, we're still working on the analysis of this, but if you go around the country, there are many states where ballot measures that were frankly liberal, uh, legalizing marijuana, you know, supporting women's reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, quite, quite a few things that were uh, liberal positions or what you'd regard as left-wing positions won by large margins. And the candidates that opposed those initiatives squeaked by. And in, in, in Wisconsin was, was an example with Scott Walker, the measure that he opposed with all his heart and soul, rights for workers, whatever it was. I mean, you know, it's hard to keep everything in your head and pull triple all-nighters at the same time. But the measure that he opposed, that one, that one, and Scott Walker won. It didn't make sense that the people who were voting for one, they were turned out to vote for that. We were saying there was no Democratic turnout. Well, where did all those voters come from that voted for those ballot measures? Well, here's the thing. You know, and people ask, well, don't you think Rove or whoever was interested in those ballot measures? And the answer is no. No. What the plan is, is to gain power. These little temporary things, these little ballot measures, are very, very low on that priority list. In addition, the polls going into the election showed that these ballot measures were going to pass by margins of 30, 40, 50 percent. They were not riggable. That was way beyond the range of the smell test. So they were left alone. But they stand as evidence of the fact of what the nature of the electorate was. How could this electorate that supported all these ballot measures across this country, how could that same electorate give the Republicans a route, a sweep, the opponents of all these ballot measures, people who came right out and said that, that they, would, they would oppose them and that they opposed these initiatives and that they stood for something diametrically opposite? I'm glad that you uh, did mention the election of 2010. That's the important year, right? 2010 was watershed because it enabled the post-census gerrymandering that was so effective and so ruthless. And we looked at 2010, and what was interesting about that was with a relatively modest victory in terms of the number of votes cast, uh, the margin of, of victory in the national popular vote for the House of Representatives when you put all the races together, they took an unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented sweep of seats. So the seats gained to margin of victory ratio 
was something we'd never seen before in the history of this country. It was, from a standpoint of probability, like so many of the other anomalies that we've seen in the last 10 years, absolutely improbable. Couldn't happen. And yet we saw it. They took 128 seats, a net gain of 128 seats in a House of Representatives in which 300 of the seats are safe. (laughs) They've all been gerrymandered, you know, before. So there are not very many seats in play. They basically ran the table of everything in complete defiance of what the polls had predicted. And that was 2010. And... Again, there was, there was almost no reaction. It was an off-year election. Obama was safely in the White House. And nobody looked at this dynamic where it had not happened before, that so many seats transferred power based on such a small, supposed electoral victory. So that was half a mnemonic. That was, that was absolutely indicative of targeted manipulation picking off these close races, these competitive races, and winning all of them. That isn't supposed to happen from a probabilistic standpoint. When races are too close to call, you're not supposed to win all of them, all 30 of them. It just doesn't happen. Well, now, when you talk about gerrymandering, you're talking about the legislature redrawing the districts, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, so, state legislatures redrawing districts. What year did the state legislatures redraw the districts? Oh, not that long ago, because I got redrawn. In 2011. In 2011, re- after the 2010 election. Correct. Okay, so what you're saying yeah. is that the 2010 election, which put all of these Republicans into the House. In the House and also into the state houses. Right. In a lot of these purple states. So that the, when the redistricting happened in 2011, they were in power to control that. Absolutely. Plus, once you're in the House, I mean, the advantages of incumbency are pretty strong. So once you get into the House and once you get into these state houses, it's hard to get people out. So what I called 2010 the gift that keeps on giving. You know, an off-year election, low on the radar, and something that conveyed and conferred all sorts of huge, huge political dividends that would be very, very hard to, to overturn. So in other words, you can have a country that's siding more and more and more demographically to the left and just disempowered from making any political changes. So you wind up with a complete disconnect between the public will and the political representation of that will. And that's what leads to the breakdown of a democracy. And, and again, you know, depending on how you view Americans, they, will either, they either have the latent energy to rise up and effectively revolt, whether it's through tax revolt, voting boycotts, general strikes, like you might see in Europe, civil disobedience, or they don't have that energy. And if we don't have that energy in this country, then you will get acquiescence. And you will get basically corporate fascism. You think it's bad now, it's going to get a lot worse. And the public will be disempowered. Jonathan Simon, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Bonnie.
I've been speaking with Jonathan Simon. Today's show has been Voting Machines, Computerized Election Theft. Dr. Simon has authored, both individually and in collaboration, numerous papers related to various aspects of election integrity. He has appeared in several election integrity-related films, including Stealing America, Vote by Vote, and Uncounted, The New Math of American Elections. He is the author of Code Red, Computerized Election Theft, and The New American Century. He is Executive Director of Election Defense Alliance at www.electiondefensealliance.org, a nonprofit organization founded in 2006 to restore observable vote counting and electoral integrity. He tweets at Jonathan Simon 14 and invites all interested in corresponding to connect with him through LinkedIn or the Code Red website, Code Red. 2014.com. That's coderead2014.com. Dr. Simon is a graduate of Harvard College, New York University School of Law, and New York Chiropractic College. He is admitted to the Bar of Massachusetts and since 1993 has directed an interdisciplinary health care facility in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our transitional website at gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. That's G-A-N-D-B-R-A-D-I-O.